essay in Fort, Fort Yukon. She studied at the University of Iowa. Returned to Alaska. Hires her kiln with wood from her husband Bacho's sawmilling project. Bacho, welcome. So, love for you to tell us whatever you like. So, um, I've lived up in Fort Yukon for like 16 years now. It's northeast of Fairbanks, about 150 miles, eight miles above the Arctic Circle. I went up there because of love. Um, and yeah, I studied to be a potter and. Um, you know, there was kind of a logistical hump to get over in terms of setting up a studio there. But um, yeah, I have a studio built of wood-fired kiln. I fire with wood for um, kind of for aesthetic reasons, but also just practical reasons because other fuel sources are prohibitively expensive up that far. Um, and yeah, I'm a potter, and I'm really trying to um, kind of echo some of the stuff that I experienced. You know, living up in the flats, it's not like in your face big beauty like here, like gigantic mountains and the ocean and the sort of amazing geography that you have down here. It's super subtle. It's all flat. You know, in the wintertime, it's this monochromatic landscape that's all black and white and it's all moon shadows and windswept snow, that kind of thing. Um, and then same thing in the summertime, it's like only blue sky and different shades of green. So you really kind of have to look a little bit to catch the subtleties and the differences. And I'm trying to kind of communicate that with my work with doing a lot of layering of information on my surfaces. Um, but at the same time, um, kind of limiting my palette and really focusing on just a few floral motifs, which are the rose hips, roses, iris, and arnica. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to kind of limit my vocabulary, just sort of like my landscape is limited to a certain extent, but then show off a lot of subtlety and range, even with that kind of language. Um, and absolutely ask me any questions about process that you want. I know a lot of potters, or non-potters are not into process like potters are, but anyone who wants to ask about process, I can totally give you an earful, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And thank you all for coming. It's really great to visit Homer. I'll ask you a question because I love it so much. How do you how do you get a bowl that looks like this? I, I can tell it's porcelain, and I, I think that's a chino glaze in there. So that 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 orange. But mm -hmm. How do you get that amazing mossy kind of surface? So I throw the bowl with porcelain, and then um, I use four different colored slips. I use this turquoise. I use a light blue, a pink, and sort of a tangerine. And so it's all just the slip. It's just liquid porcelain clay and then I put a colorant in it. So it might be something just like cobalt oxide for the blue or some of these are mason stains which are engineered colors. So I'll put that on and then I do the drawing. In this case, the drawing is with a, like a navy blue slip that I made and I carve it out. And then when I, I you know, a lot of potters you play with recipes. And so I found this really great porcelain chino recipe. You have to apply it really thin, otherwise it goes oatmeal, so you have to use it very thin to get it to go peach, put it in the kiln, and then chino just happens to be super tacky for wood ash, and so in my kiln, fire it with wood, some of the ash gets caught in the flame travel and it deposits on the pot, and chino's just extremely receptive to that. So a lot of it's about position in the kiln, where I'm gonna get ash build up, and sort of where it's in the kiln and where it is in relation to other pieces of the kiln shelf, the furniture, that kind of thing. So, I mean, a lot of it's like serendipitous, um, but it's a lot, a lot cooking sort of, like you, like after a certain amount of time you don't necessarily measure super carefully because you kind of have a feel for the ingredients and what the result's going to be. So I think loading the kiln and positioning pieces ends up being a little bit like that. It's a, yeah, result of experience a little bit. Is 
there anything about how you're um, living and working as a potter in Fort Yukon that really kind of distinguishes your process technically or conceptually, like conditions that you have to sort of withstand or manage or mitigate? 100%, yeah. yeah. So we're not connected to a road system. So um, my only choices for getting any kind of material in are to fly it in. Um, or to bring it by boat, like by a barge. And so the river freezes solid, so we only have barge service from, you know, roughly May to August. Well, it depends on how high or low the river is. Um, so I have to be super organized or sort of pay the price. Because, like, on the barge, it's only 20 cents per pound, but flying it, it's like 77 or 78 cents a pound. So that's one thing. Um, I have to be super organized, make all my orders in, like, April so that they get delivered from Tacoma to the barge company and then just sit there until it's opportune for them to come up. Um, so the stuff gets trucked or barged from Tacoma into like Port of Anchorage, driven up to Fairbanks, then down to Nenana, and then I just wait for it and it comes on the barge. And it's extremely informal once it gets to the barge line because everybody in town just kind of knows when the barge shows up and then you find someone with a forklift to help you offload your pallets, right? Um, so I have to be organized in terms of getting material. And then the other thing is, is that I don't actually have a gigantic prop um, uh, studio or anything like that. And if I lived in a city, I would get wet clay um, instead of making my own. But I, you know, a third of the way to clay that you order is water, and I can't really afford to ship up water from Tacoma. So I have to get all my own dry clay. And so then in my small studio. Um, I make clay, and again, I don't have a university where I get to use their mixer and their pug mill and all that kind of stuff. So I get my clay, I mix the recipe, the powder, right, and then I have five-gallon buckets with water, I mix a big slurry, and then I lay it out in canvas hammocks, let it dry, and then we did get a used pug mill off eBay like a few years ago that needed some TLC. Um, but got that going, and so that's really saved my carpal tunnel <laughs> from, from wedging the clay. Um, so there's that, and then the whole recycling it, that thing, um, mixing glazes. Again, like I, uh, I have an Excel spreadsheet that tells me how much to order, because, you know, I came from the university system where there's like pounds and pounds of materials, and you, anything you want is kind of on hand, and that's why I had to think like, oh, I'm an experiment with glazes, but I actually don't have any nickel oxide. How much do I need, you know? So I had to be... There's a learning curve, getting all that going, and that's part of the reason why I try to limit um, my variables, because then I know how much to order and to have on hand. Um, and then, yeah, firing-wise, I have a small electric kiln that's in my studio, and I fire to sort of the lowest bisque temperature possible, because, again, electricity is super expensive. So I only bisque to, like, 012, maybe 08. Um, and then I glaze stuff, and then my wood fire kiln is outdoors, um, and I fire it with white spruce because kind of there's not black spruce up in Fort Yukon, and you know birch and cottonwood aren't gonna give me great BTUs. Um, so yeah, um, I try. It's really cold up in Fort Yukon, and I try not to load the kiln below like 10 below because I have to have my gloves off to get pieces into the kiln. So what I actually do is I have again in a normal circumstance you would have your glaze pieces, take them to the kiln, and then you put these little wads on the feet for a wood kiln so that wood ash doesn't blow onto the foot and glue it to the shelf that it's sitting on. So normally you would wad out there and kind of fit everything in. But because it's super cold, I wad everything the night before. Um, and then I have this system of, um, I have dishwasher trays from like a commercial dishwasher, the big plastic ones that you'd have in a restaurant. I have them lined with bubble wrap, and so I put, you know, like I'll have a 
bowl with like glaze that's kind of fragile because it's just powder and it's flipped upside down and I have all the wads and the pieces so I have like seven dishwasher trays and I have all my pieces gently balanced on the bubble wrap, drive them out to my kiln and then flip them over so that everything's super ready so I only have to have my gloves off to kind of transition and finesse the pieces in and I don't have to get my fingers wet, that kind of thing. This is all processed stuff. Same thing like wadding your kiln posts. You have to protect your kiln posts and normally you you want everything to be level, but I don't, if I use wet wadding when I'm stacking the kiln, um, so I have the shelf, I'll put like a little donut of wadding on it, I put my kiln post on top of it, but the problem is, is that it's frozen, um, and I don't, I can't reposition it, and then when the kiln fires, it falls out and it's wonky, right, or it just kind of crumbles, so I make, again, way ahead of time, little like wheat bins of wadding, I roll out my wadding and cut it into little like crackers, and so then I can just kind of shell out crackers super fast. They're already dry, they're already level, um, and load like that. So I think I have like all these little adaptations that are not really normal, but they let me do what I'm doing. And then my kiln, it's a fast fire design wood kiln, which has two benefits. It supposedly fires fast, it doesn't actually fire that fast. And then um, I really get a more um, like a gas fire atmosphere than I do a wood fire, like an onagama, super heavy ash flow atmosphere. And so I do that because, you know, it's just me firing it out there. So I don't have the luxury of having like a 36 hour firing because I don't want to stay up that long. So I just try to fire between like 12 to 18 hours by myself. So yeah, I'm sure I could come up with a bunch of other adaptations I have, but yeah. It really does like each cup kind of like into a whole other category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, care. For sure, for sure. Well, I mean, it's like any, it's like getting dressed in the winter, too. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you, you always adapt. We took a trip to Glacier Bay, and everybody was surprised, like, why don't you guys have rain jackets? And we were like, well, because we don't, no, you don't need a rain jacket. It doesn't rain up there, right? And so we were totally surprised, right? Like, unprepared for my, you know, seven-year-old to get drenched, because I was like, oh, I guess guess he needs a rain jacket now, right? <laughs> so same thing, like up there, like you, you don't, you wouldn't realize that you have to have all these tools in your tool belt, but after a little while, you have them. Yeah. So yeah, thank you. And again, any process questions, there's a lot more. <laughs> I can tell you why. Yeah. Linda. I have a